Section 34 of Charles II by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 5. The Popish Terror and the Triumph of the Court. Part 5. A month later, Charles was again ill with symptoms which looked like apoplexy. He had shown himself sullen and intractable, and lived very privately at this time. There was little resort to him, and he passed his days in fishing or walking in the park, which indeed he loved more than to be in a crowd or in business. But he will keep well if he can be kept from fishing when a dog would not be abroad. Thomas Bruce draws a striking picture of the change which for the time had come over the court, of its comparative melancholy and solitude. He was, he says, put in mind of some manuscript verses that were going about then. Thus have I seen a king at chess, his rooks and knights withdrawn, his queen and bishops in distress, shifting about, growing less and less, with here and there a pawn. The Whig attack had not yet spent itself. On June 26, 1680, Shaftesbury and fourteen other leaders of the party presented James as a recusant at Westminster Hall. The court of King's Bench, however, managed to secure the discharge of the jury before the case came on, and the move was a failure. Neither of the brothers seemed troubled. His Highness smiles, dances, makes love, and hunts. Charles, who by this time had recovered his spirits, supported James, out of his genuine resolve to maintain the succession, or, as ill-natured people said, because it is good to have a successor they like worse than himself. Undoubtedly James was useful as a first line of defence. The king and duke seem both in good humour, and if they will be firm I believe they are safe. Charles felt he ran no risk in refusing the Whig sheriff selected by the city, in spite of the fact that the Lord Mayor played the devil, although in what manner we are unfortunately not told in detail but he sought as before to disarm opposition before the approaching meeting of parliament by inducing james and his wife to go to scotland again on the express assurance that he would give up neither the duke's rights nor the control of the sword he did this with one of his usual jests upon proposing it in council he found that there were seven who supported and eleven who objected to the journey since he has so many friends for him said charles i see he must go at length the king met parliament on october twenty first sixteen eighty he was in ill humour having ill things put into his head possibly this was because louise de Kerouaille had openly allied herself to monmouth and shaftesbury and declared for exclusion personal pique and the chance of farther enrichment had led her to this decision. She had been slighted by James's wife, and had been offered a heavy bribe by the Whig leaders. Charles followed his former course. He bade the House pursue the plot, at the very time that he was pressing its absurdity upon Rearsby, and with abominable cynicism he threw to them, as it were, the Catholic lords imprisoned in the Tower but none the less he once more made it clear that he would permit no tampering with the succession. As the commons had come together under Shaftesbury's impulse, and with the ground well prepared by Barillon for exclusion, 
and nothing short of exclusion, the result was what might be imagined. A detailed account could alone give an adequate idea of the violence of the proceedings. The commons took their tale of blood, and after a fortnight of uncompromising votes of rejection of those very idle things called expedients, as being like Montebank's tricks in physic, of expulsion of members who dared to stand in the way, of declarations in favour of petitioning, of hysterical declamation, the exclusion bill passed the Commons on November 11th. On the 15th, with a mighty shout, the bill was taken to the Lords by Russell, followed by most of the Commons. It was significant that he was accompanied by the Lord Mayor and Aldermen. Charles stayed in the House for the debate. He heard Shaftesbury's passionate attacks. He heard Monmouth urge exclusion, for the king's sake, a Judas kiss, he bitterly said, and listened while Halifax triumphed. Then the violence broke out with heat made fiercer by disappointment. Once more the torrent of expletives burst forth. Addresses, attacks on ministers, impeachments, expulsions, resolutions against the papists, against James, against the judges, against placemen and pensioners, against prorogations, against those who lent money to the crown, associations, votes that the penal laws should not be executed against the Protestants, the very dispensing power which Charles had claimed in vain. These were flung out by the commons day by day. They refused to discuss questions of foreign affairs as court tricks, they started many hairs, but catched but few. Their violence was equalled by, was a measure indeed of, their impotence. Charles was quite careless of the fact that everybody was unsatisfied with him. He may, as Dorothy Sidney said, have acted as if he were mad. But he was completely master of the situation. When the Commons addressed him against Halifax, whom they now hated more than they had hated Danby, Charles told them in a reply which smothered them with blandness that he doth not find the grounds in the address of this house to be sufficient to induce him to remove the Earl of Halifax. He had resolved, as he said to Rearsby, never to part with any officer at the request of either house. My father, he declared, lost his head by that compliance, but as for me, I will die another way. He was in excellent humour throughout. On December 24th he spent some time upon the subject of showing the cheat of such as pretended to be more holy and devout than others, and said they were generally the greatest knaves. He was that night two hours putting off his clothes, and it was half-past one before he went to bed. He seemed extremely free from trouble or care, though one would have thought he was under a great deal for everybody guessed that he must either dismiss the Parliament in a few days, or give himself up to what they desired. All doubts were soon removed. It was apparently by Danby's advice that he prorogued Parliament on January 10th, 1681, very suddenly, and when the Lord Mayor and Aldermen petitioned that he would allow it not only to meet at the appointed day, but to continue sitting until it had secured religion and the safety of the king, he put an end to all doubts by a dissolution. The honours of war were with Charles. Upon one matter only had the angry commons had their way. The Earl of Stafford, 
despite his seventy years, was brought to trial before his peers. It would seem that he was deliberately chosen from among the five Catholic lords in the tower, because he was old and infirm, least capable of defending himself, and disliked even in his own family. And he had made his fate certain by bringing charges against Shaftesbury. The trial was a mockery of justice. The king listened throughout, while Louise de Querouaille, who may go where she will now she is a favorite of the House of Commons, sat in the hall, and confirmed her newly acquired popularity by distributing smiles and sweetmeats to the members of the opposition who crowded round her. Stafford disappointed his persecutors by his courage and by the ability of his defense, while his perfect innocency appeared in all his actions and expressions. But his own relatives voted against him. Lauderdale, as his last public act of shame, declared him guilty. Nottingham, who presided, strained the law to the utmost, and seemingly under the grossest error in common justice that ever was known. Such are the words of Francis North. The poor old man was sentenced to die. Even so, the ferocity of his persecutors was unappeased. A savage protest was raised in the commons, joined in, one regrets to say, by Russell, when Charles sanctioned the omission of the more revolting of the hideous rites which by law accompanied an execution for treason. Charles might well show this cheap leniency. The king that heard all the trials seemed extremely concerned at his hard but undeserved fate. He was very uneasy, says another of his trusted courtiers, when it came to sign the death warrant, and did it with the last reluctancy, and it was with the highest difficulty that it was obtained, but the timorous part of the king's council overruled the rest. Faithful to his cynical policy of leaving all to the laws, he refused once more to exercise the right of pardon. At the same time, after his fashion, he tried to throw responsibility on others. When Anglesey, one of the lords who had declared Stafford guilty, expressed surprise before his face that he should have signed the warrant, and why, my lord, says Charles, did you give your vote against him? Charles had, for the time, utterly routed the exclusionists, and had preserved the purity of the doctrine of hereditary right. So strong did he seem that it was said that if the king would be advised, it is in his power to make all his opponents tremble. But the aspect of affairs had been very threatening. Sober men had even anticipated civil war. Halifax had said to Rearsby, If it come to a war, you and I must go together. And Halifax generally measured his words. We know that James had spoken of the probability of war to Barillon, and that the garrisons had been put in readiness. The Duke intended to fight the English Parliament from Scotland and Ireland as of old. He had claimed the help of France, and Louis had promised it when he should feel himself safe in Scotland. Charles could now show his feelings, though this lasted not long, for it was not in his nature to do harsh things long. He dismissed leading exclusionists from the council, among them Sunderland, the secretary who was in close alliance with Louise de Querouaille, Essex, and Temple. He indeed punished Sunderland with especial severity 
by not allowing him to receive from his successor any part of the sum which according to custom he had paid to williamson for his office charles then announced that the next parliament would be held at oxford the sagacity of this step by which the session was removed from london where shaftesbury and the whigs were supreme was shown by their outspoken anger essex shaftesbury and fourteen other peers sought an interview in which they urged their objections charles coldly replied that he regarded their petition only as the opinion of so many men indirectly the step helped the king in london itself tradesmen have other things to think of than exclusion and the loss of custom in london turns many shopkeepers into courtiers there was no doubt that the coming session would be a stormy and critical one shaftesbury had again issued special instructions for the constituencies exclusion limitation of the royal power to prorogue or dissolve at will the disbanding of the king's guards and all other standing forces and the refusal of supplies without these safeguards these were to be the tests for candidates under this impulse a house was returned even more prepared to go to extreme lengths than the last what bruce says of bedfordshire held good for the whole country the russell faction was like a spring tide at full moon the city was enthusiastic in support of shaftesbury and monmouth and whitehall was beset by crowds of vaporing exclusionists it looked indeed like the beginning of civil war when members came to oxford armed with large retinues of horsemen and with blue bows and ribbons inscribed with no popery no slavery in their hats the king heard that there was an intention to kidnap him in oxford carry him to london and make terms with him there he was not the man to lose his head in the danger but he was careful to post lord oxford's regiment and detachments along the windsor road to secure his retreat if it should prove necessary charles entered upon his last contest with parliament with a clearer determination and a lighter heart than usual for he had taken measures of the old familiar kind which would enable him to slip from under their hand whenever he chose ever since the fall of danby he had been in poverty which must almost have recalled to him the days of exile for the officers of the crown and household were clamorous for their salaries and wages there were no stores in the magazines either for sea or land forces the garrisons were out of repair the platforms decayed the cannon unmounted parliament gave no supplies and there was scarce bread for the king's family in the autumn of sixteen seventy nine he had nearly come to an agreement with louis whereby for a pension of three years he was to promise an intermission of parliament for that period this particular intrigue however came to nothing at the time through mutual distrust and through the peculiarities of the situation in both countries charles therefore threw himself heartily into the cause of the allies against louis and in june sixteen eighty concluded a treaty with spain for resistance to france louis in his turn decided to support the monmouth shaftesbury faction by profuse bribery in which he included not only the parliamentary opposition but city merchants and the chief presbyterian preachers but it was once more made clear that nothing could permanently oppose the course of the national hatred against france 
and Louis recognized during the great session of 1680 that it was more advisable to support Charles against Parliament than Parliament against Charles. In November, Barillon had opened the subject again with the king. Charles hung back until just before the dissolution. He then expressed himself willing to listen to proposals. By the time of the Oxford meeting, all had been arranged. Hyde had investigated the finances and had reported that even with the strictest economy, some help was necessary to make the king independent of Parliament. Louis was therefore asked and consented to conclude the compact which had fallen through in 1679. He agreed to pay Charles a subsidy for the next three years, which would enable him to live quietly, while Charles promised to disengage himself gradually from the Spanish alliance and to take care that Parliament should not drive him to measures hostile to France. This agreement was unwritten. It was known to Hyde alone. Not even James or Louise de Querouaille, though she had now recovered favour, was allowed to share the secret. And it is a lively illustration of the difficulty of secrecy to read that on one occasion Charles found it necessary to discuss matters with Barillon, not in his own, but in the Queen's bedroom, dans la ruelle du lit, the narrow space between the bed and the wall, where at least there would be the width of the bed between them and listeners. As there were no documents, there was of course nothing binding, and it was understood that if Charles could come to terms with his Parliament, the agreement would lapse. End of section 34